This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Wednesday, June 7th. I'm Gavin McGough. In today's headlines, a sobering public health report. Curtain falls on Neil Young concert proposal. 50 years of festivals in Telluride and a mountain weather forecast. San Miguel County is just one of six counties in the West Central Public Health Partnership who come together to pool resources and collaborate on public health needs. We uh, work in a five-year community health assessment to see what kind of work we should be focusing on if there's new health needs and disparities and what the pulse of the community are. That's Grace Franklin, Director of Public Health for San Miguel County, addressing the Board of County Commissioners this week. Last year, San Miguel County and the West Central Partnership wrapped up their community survey, taking the public health temperature of regional residents. Now, after running the data and conducting a handful of in-depth interviews, the survey has identified six key areas of public health concern. The first of those areas is healthcare affordability. Franklin says that issue comes back to insurance, both for those who have it and those who don't. Some individuals are paying upward to uh, $1,500 to $2,000 per month for a high deductible insurance, which can be really um, helpful are cost prohibitive. Um, Even those that um, are insured state that only 49% say it's affordable. Then there's the focus area of mental health. Roughly half of adults in San Miguel County seek out counseling, which is actually a good thing because asking for help is better than going it alone, Franklin says. So there is that support and motivation, but I I do feel not only is mental health um, across the board challenging in the U.S., but living in a rural area, there are really unique challenges. Even as folks are seeking out care and support, many are left struggling. The survey found 40% of adults experience some level of isolation and depression, and 10% actually consider suicide. Amongst younger populations, a Colorado health survey found 25% of high schoolers in the state experience isolation and depression, with around 15% reporting suicidal thoughts. Those numbers are even higher amongst teenage LGBTQ populations. Substance use presents another area of concern, particularly for those high schoolers, reports Franklin. Um, So for Telluride High School students, 38% stated they had five or more drinks within a couple of hours in the last 30 days. That's about three times more than the state norm. 35% used um, marijuana in the past 30 days, where the Colorado... um, average is 13 percent. Another vulnerable group, those at the other end of the age spectrum, our community's elderly population. There was a few big factors here, um, but a common theme for San Miguel County is that it's considered a bad place to age in. Isolation, both geographically and emotionally, appears as a big challenge for San Miguel County's elderly, alongside concerns around transportation, specialized medical care, and the altitude. Food security and housing affordability round out the final two areas of concern identified by the survey. In addition to teenagers and elderly populations, the findings also identified unique challenges for the county's Latinx population and its young children. Commissioner Ann Brown recognizes the sobering results. I think it's a really important reality check um, because things seem to be 
fine on the surface, you know, where everybody has jobs and going to school and all that kind of thing. But there's a lot of suffering in our community and um, we, we have work to do. That work will take the form of a community health plan, which is being drawn up to address the areas of vulnerability and concern. Public health staff will return at a future meeting to discuss next steps. Festivarians and fans holding out hope for a Neil Young concert in Town Park this summer are in store for disappointment. At, th at this point, it looks like it's pretty much dead in the water for at least this summer. That's Steve Gumbel of SBG Productions speaking on Wednesday afternoon. A few weeks ago, Neil Young's team reached out to SBG about putting on a potential concert in Town Park this summer. SBG Productions jumped into gear, presenting the possibility to town council, where it received an initial go-ahead. Last week, the Parks and Rec Commission gave the potential concert their seal of approval. In the next step in the approval process, the plan was scheduled to go before the Commission for Community Assistance, Arts and Special Events at its June 7th meeting. But in the final moments, SBG Productions withdrew the application. Again, here's Steve Gumbel. We were looking at the timeline that we needed to get answers from um, from Neil's agent, and they just weren't able to commit to the timeline and the approval process that you know Telluride requires in order to do something on a large scale like that. And um, there's just a lot of moving parts on their side of the program. We just could not get them to commit to an exact date, and we felt it was just in everyone's best interest to just table this for now. When Neil Young's team originally reached out, they floated a one- or two-night concert event sometime between August 14th and 20th. But as the weeks ticked by and SBG Productions filled out town applications, they were unable to get Neil Young's team to commit to exact dates. All the moving parts, says Gumbel, complicated the approval process and have more or less put a kibosh on the concert. Um, it, it's, a, it's a challenging process because, you know, working within the town constraints, that's not what they're used to. And so um, unless they came back with like very definitive sort of these, this would be the date that we can do Telluride, um, I, I, I'm not going to um, really pursue anything at this point. And they haven't mentioned anything. Neil Young performed in Town Park in 2016. Gumbel adds that although Young might not take to the Town Park stage in 2023, there's always next year, perhaps. Something told me it was over, baby. When I saw you, when I saw you and that girl and y'all was talking. Something deep down, deep down in my soul. The sound of Telluride's history is, in part, the sound of Etta James. I'd like to thank you for having me at the your Telluride Jazz Festival this year. Thank you. That's the blues legend performing circa 1980 at the Telluride Jazz Fest, piped into the creaky walls of the Weatherford Gallery upstairs at the Telluride Historical Museum, where curator of collections Molly Daniel greets me 
to take me back in time. This exhibit is about the 50th anniversary of both the Bluegrass Festival, the film festival, but it also celebrates as many festivals as we could fit in this space that have contributed to Telluride's culture and community and kind of made it the town that we love today. What does a room full of festival memorabilia look like? Posters, over 50 of them, line the walls alongside historic photographs, wristbands and entry cards, of course, newspaper clippings, and one enormous Main Street banner running the length of the ceiling and blooming with a funky freeform geometry. And this was made by Naomi Salzman. It's one of these beautiful handmade banners. It's got these really lovely, fun, abstract shapes that are vibrant colors. You walk in and it just feels like the energy of a festival in Telluride, which is why I chose this one. Naomi Salzman was the daughter of Emmanuel, whose name you might recognize as one of the founders of Mushroom Fest. Although Mushroom Festival is certainly storied, the two 50-year-old juggernauts which ground the exhibition are the Bluegrass Festival and the Film Fest. Daniel takes us into the history of the latter. Um, and I think a lot of its history has the Sheridan Opera House to thank. Um, the couple that bought it, the Pences, um, had a good friend, Jim Card, who wanted to screen some of his film collection here in Telluride, and that eventually evolved into the full festival. So early on, uh, the festival was a lot more about kind of a revival of the classics and showing old archival films and retrospectives, that kind of thing. But Telluride's festival culture goes much deeper than film or bluegrass. Again, here's Daniel. The idea of festivals kind of begins with the 4th of July. Um, and you can date uh, Telluride's 4th of July tradition as far back as early 1880s. <laughs> Um, and it was a really, obviously it's a big deal today. It was a much bigger deal back then. Uh, the miners would get several days off of work. There'd be these big competitions. You could win a lot of money. For decades, that tradition of an enormous 4th of July celebration held strong. Daniel points out a paper flyer from the mid 20th century listing town events for all ages. We've got this program from 1941 that I think is really cool. And it just shows you these a wide variety of events that happened that year. We have everything from band concerts to sack races. We have a cracker eating contest for um, younger kids. There's a nail driving contest for girls and women. An egg race with bring your own teaspoon and egg. Absolutely, it just goes on and on. Daniel next draws our attention to another 1800s artifact a photograph of a dozen or so mustachioed men posing quite formally with a distant view of the bridal veils rising behind them. Each somber figure clutches a brass horn instrument. The photo, it turns out, is of a Telluride band which traveled to the Mountain and Plain Festival in Denver in the 1890s and won the musical competition there three years in a row. And we have this wonderful quote from the newspaper talking about how um, the band basically deserves all the praises. It has done more to advertise the camp of Telluride and make the thousands of people in Denver familiar with the word Telluride. So they were this beloved band at the time. They did great. Kind of shows you how our um, culture of music, our love of music here in Telluride goes all the way back to at least the 1890s. Right. Yes. And the idea of promotion is interesting, like making the name of Telluride known and then. Exactly. Yeah, we, we haven't always been known for mining there. We've also been known for music as far back as 
Yeah, the 1890s. Having studied and collected so many festival backstories, Daniel has some theories on what has made Telluride the festival capital it is today. For a lot of these festivals, it's been kind of an outside expert in their field. I'm looking at Chamber Music Mushroom Festival and Balloon Festival, and this was true for each one, where there was a local person who kind of was interested in having this event, and then they were able to pull in an outside expert who was kind of enthusiastic about doing it, and that's kind of how they were able to happen is... We're able to have all these connections with people in other places beyond Telluride. Once those experts got a taste of the Box Canyon beauty and brought some of their followers along with them, they wanted to return year after year. And the rest, they say, is history. And another thing is, one more thing is I just don't want to be free. The Telluride Museum's annual exhibit, titled Festival Capital of the Rockies, 50 Years of Festivals in Telluride, will open on Thursday, June 8th. The museum will hold a celebration and reception at 6 p.m. About your sweet kiss and your, your, thinking about your sweet kissing your A break from the monsoon gloom is in the forecast for tomorrow, Thursday, June 8th, knock on wood, and the Wilkinson Library is taking to the park to celebrate. All the way to the Down Valley Park, in fact, where they'll set up blankets and books and invite you to join for an afternoon of reading or a quick browse before selecting a book to carry on your way. The park pop-up is the first of four being offered this June, with the others scheduled for the 13th, the 22nd, and the 27th. They run from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. If you're rocking out on local trails, choose your path wisely this week. Kodo News reported on Monday the Mill Creek Trail is currently closed while Telluride Mountain Club works to clear a large rock slide in the area. Additionally, the Cornette Creek Trail off Aspen Street is closed. Earlier this week, the town installed a pipe above the trail to open a new water source for the Stillwell water treatment plant. But while the construction of the new pipe is complete, testing and tweaks to the new infrastructure are ongoing and the town asks hikers to steer clear in case of a mudslide or a rockfall event. The Colorado Supreme Court ruled on Monday that an angler wading along a stream bed on private property has no leg to stand on, issuing a decision in a case brought by fisherman and Colorado resident Roger Hill back in 2012. The court ruled against Hill and other recreators wishing to use a riverbed as a right-of-way. While many other states across the West, including Idaho, Utah, and New Mexico, allow citizens to use rivers for all sorts of recreational activities, Colorado law has long been murkier. The water in rivers in the state is open access, but the riverbeds beneath that water has historically been considered private property. Thus, wading along a stream or even bumping the bottom while rafting through can qualify as trespassing. For Hill, the issue came to a head when he was fishing in the Arkansas River back in 2012, and a nearby landowner began to hurl rocks and threaten legal action. Legal action they got, 
After multiple appeals, the case finally reached the state Supreme Court. The court's decision this week declined to open up stream beds to the public and retained the state's unconventional and oftentimes unclear approach to river law. Last month, Navajo Nation officials launched Operation Rainbow Bridge, a program designed to help Navajo citizens caught up in fraudulent rehab centers that cheated Arizona's Medicaid program millions of dollars by preying on and scamming indigenous people. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, Chris Clements of KSJD has more. Navajo Nation Attorney General Ethel Branch says that in Navajo culture, a rainbow is used to indicate movement from place to place, hence the operation's name. Governor Katie Hobbs announced in May that the state would take action against over 100 of these predatory sober living homes, which have sent recruiters to tribal communities across the western United States, targeting the unhoused and those struggling with substance abuse and taking them to facilities in the Phoenix area. In many cases, behavioral health services aren't provided at these sober living homes, and alcohol, or sometimes alcohol laced with drugs, is offered during initial transport. Branch says she believes that there should be an enhanced formal vetting process for each facility that seeks to provide services under the American Indian Health Plan. I think that is one huge issue that needs to be addressed. I mean, it's beyond the point. Um, of needing remedy. Branch says Operation Rainbow Bridge will remain in the Phoenix area for some time and will assist indigenous people who need help either returning to their communities or finding a legitimate rehab center after being caught up in this system. For KSJD, I'm Chris Clements. Pride Month is known for its colorful celebrations and its iconic symbol, the rainbow flag. Last year, one small Colorado town found itself tangled in a web of controversy over the flying of pride banners on its downtown light poles. For KVNF and Rocky Mountain Community Radio, Lisa Young takes a look at how one nonprofit organization in Paonia, Colorado, is going beyond the restrictive flag policy to, quote, color the town with rainbow flags in support of the LGBT community. Last year, Paonia's town administrator approved the flying of rainbow flags on Grand Avenue in commemoration of Pride Month. The flags flew uninterrupted until June 14th when they were replaced with the American flag for Flag Day. The next day, the Pride flags returned, as well as complaints from those who found the banners offensive. Over the next several months, the issue boiled over during town meetings. It was then placed in the hands of the street committee and local citizens to hammer out an acceptable flag policy. The committee produced a draft policy that, if adopted, would allow for the display of numerous heritage flags, including the pride flag. In November of 2022, roughly five months after the rainbow flag controversy, Paona Town Council took up that draft flag policy. In the end, the board struck down the section, which included the ceremonial, commemorative, and special occasion flags, as well as all the flags celebrating history and heritage designated months, including the pride flag. What was left in the flag policy was the legal safe road, as explained by Mayor Mary Bachran. The U.S. flag, the state flag, and then if, you know the town owns some other kinds of flags, like the banners that are currently flying on the DMEA poles. The town purchased those from the Creative Coalition, so those are town-owned banners, and so we can fly those. During the November meeting, Councillor Paige Smith made clear where she stood on the role of government and the troubling flag issue. 
Again, remember, we are a municipality. We are not a social club. We are here to provide services to the public, streets, sidewalks, water, sewer. We have no obligation to be the bulletin board for everything that comes along. We just can't. We just don't have the bandwidth or the staff. So I really think we have to drill this down. American flag, Colorado flag, town purchase decorations, because we've been doing Christmas decorations forever. Alicia Michelson, Executive Director for the Learning Council in Paonia, which advocates for the LGBTQ plus community, found the town council's decision disappointing. It felt like a no to the pride flag, especially in light of the fact that a week after they made decision, they put Christmas decorations all around the town, which was something that came up in the conversation as we were discussing the pride flags. Michelson says that while she likes Christmas and Christmas decorations, she also likes Hanukkah and Kwanzaa. For the LGBT advocate, the issue is about inclusion versus privilege creating space for some cultures and celebrations, but not a variety. And so that felt almost like a second smack in the face of like, okay, one week we're going to say no, and the next week we're going to hang the Christmas decorations and we're going to leave those up until February. For the town board, fair in the eyes of some wasn't the aim, but rather an attempt to avoid lawsuits and dampen down the flames of controversy. Town attorney Nick Cotton Baez advised that the town could, if they chose, include Heritage Month flags as town government speech and allow the flying of the pride flags. However, his recommendation fell short as the board voted down any official approval related to history, heritage, and special flags. Despite the new policy, the Learning Council is making lemonade out of what it sees as a sour deal. You know, of course, it was disappointing for the flags to be voted down, but people still felt like, you know, we can still send that message um, that we are affirming our LGBTQ community and that we welcome everybody here in our community. And so we can do that on a um, more um, like personal level. This Pride season, the nonprofit is running a Color the Town campaign, which encourages local businesses and residents to proudly fly Pride flags throughout the month. To further its mission, the nonprofit is giving away free flags and offering installation as well. For KVNF and Rocky Mountain Community Radio, I'm Lisa Young. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for a cloudy night tonight with a slight chance of showers in a low near 40 degrees. Thursday should bring sun with a high near 65 degrees and nary a thundercloud in sight. Thursday night should be partly cloudy and calm with a low near 40 degrees. Friday brings more sun with a high near 65 and a slight breeze, followed by a partly cloudy night with a low near 40. This has been the news for Wednesday, June 7th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206. And now, a personal commentary. Hi everyone, this is Lance Waring. During the recent Mountain Film Festival, climate activist Bill McKibben spoke about the need for swift and decisive action to address global carbon emissions. In his presentation, Mr. McKibben expressed dismay that San Miguel County had just placed a six-month moratorium on commercial-scale solar projects. 
As one of the three San Miguel County commissioners, his words struck deep. It never feels good to have one of your heroes call you out. After his talk, I caught up with Mr. McKibben for a follow-up conversation. We discussed many things, including the backstory behind the headline, Pumping the Brakes on Solar Power, County Drafts Moratorium, found on the front page of the May 26th edition of the Daily Planet. I opened by reassuring him the commissioner's top environmental goal is to make San Miguel County a carbon neutral organization, and that over the last four years we've made significant progress. The county has approved several small-scale solar generation projects in the region. It has retrofitted existing county buildings with solar panels and physical upgrades to improve energy efficiency. The sheriff's offices in jail and Ilium are solar-powered, as is the sheriff's new net-zero annex in Norwood. Currently, 70% of the county's facilities' power is fueled by renewable energy. The intent is to reach 100% as soon as possible. The county also updated its building codes recently to encourage and sometimes require additional green building practices. Building code revisions are a continual process, so there'll be more to come. For private citizens, the county partnered with the state to offer rebates for home solar installations. Again, these efforts will continue. In the financial realm, the county examined its portfolio in 2022 to confirm there were no carbon-based investments. And five years ago, the county joined the city and the county of Boulder in a lawsuit against Suncor and Exxon, asserting these corporations hid knowledge of the negative effects of burning fossil fuels from the public. The suit demands recompense for the expenses these governments had to assume due to climate change, such as wildfires, floods, and mudslides. San Miguel County has a spending cap of $5,000 towards this effort, and the case is grinding through the legal system. If the plaintiffs prevail, it may be a landmark decision and set a precedent for similar claims. Clearly, San Miguel County is committed to addressing climate change, but there's always more to be done. For example, there's currently no language in the county's land use code specifically addressing the requirements for commercial-scale solar projects. As a commissioner, my primary responsibility is to protect the health, safety, and welfare of county residents. I can't protect those interests effectively if there are no formal guidelines for an applicant or parameters for citizens in the county to weigh the merits and impacts of a potential project. An application process without ground rules is like a game of flamingo croquet between Alice and the Queen of Hearts, frustrating and unfair to all participants. When Mr. McKibben and I spoke, he acknowledged the need for ground rules, but simultaneously emphasized the need for speed. He reminded me there won't ever be perfect impact-free solutions and that emergency situations require decisive action by leaders. In response, I promised I'd expedite the process of creating amendments to the county land use code that address commercial scale solar projects and will continue to push for climate action on all fronts. Our conversation ended with a firm handshake and me purchasing his most recent book. The inscription reads, To Lance, with my thanks for joining the fray. I'm proud to be enlisted as a soldier in Mr. McKibben's Global Climate Army, and I'll continue to fight in the trenches here in San Miguel County. Opinions broadcast over KOTO are those of the speakers 
You are also invited to express your views after the news or on access each weekday at around 4pm. If you'd like to comment, please contact a staff person here at Kodo. We encourage you to speak out on important public issues.